Welcome everybody to Jupiter Natural Lesson 3. This week we are going to discuss Jinx and the Evil Eye. These are both um, a lot more mainstream in the last few weeks, two weeks. Um, these are stuff that it is much more clear in Judaism in the Torah that we there's a lot more clarity about these ideas that how we feel about them. There's a lot of reference to curse and evil eye within the Torah itself. Um, so I just want to um, just I'll, I'll reference a few things just to start off. You know, you have. Um, King David was cursed by an enemy, it says it speaks about in the Torah. And then in our culture, you know, one of the biggest franchises in Hollywood is Harry Potter. It's all about spells, curses. I've never been into it, but so I've been told. Um, and so we are going to discuss, should we care about these? How to, how to react if we are cursed or why we should be careful about this, etc. Um, so I just want to start off with a story. There's one time a, a guy was sitting on a plane and he sees this woman with the most beautiful diamond ring. So he looks at her and says, you know, this is the most beautiful ring diamond I've ever seen. It's a beautiful diamond. Where have you gotten it? So she looks at, she looks at him and like, oh, you mean my diamond? <laughs> Oh, this is the Goldstein diamond. It's, it's a famous diamond. It's a Goldstein diamond. He said, well, it's beautiful. She said, yeah, but it comes with the curse, with the Goldstein curse. So he's like, what's the Goldstein curse? She's like, Mr. Goldstein. <laughs> All right. It's a horrible joke. Okay, let's get started. So we're going we're gonna, to, this class is going to be split into three sections. There will be section A will be about um, Billy the Goat, a famous story in pop culture. Billy the Goat? Billy the Goat. Goat. Um, we'll speak about the curse of Billy the Goat. And then we're going to speak about the idea of the evil eye and curses. We're going to bunch that together because within, from the Torah perspective, they are actually very similar in um, a very similar idea. And then we'll finish off with what to do about curses. And what, how could we, what we could do in our day-to-day -day life to make sure we don't get affected by the evil eye. So let's start with text one, the story of Billy the Goat. Legend has it that a Chicago tavern owner named Bill, Billy Goat Sionis, um, pronounced a curse on the club on October 6, 1945, just a month after the end of World War II. Sionis went to Ringley to cheer on his beloved Cubs against the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. According to the Tavern, Tavern website, which dedicates a page to the Billy Goat curse. For game four, he purchased a ticket for himself and one for his pet goat, Murphy. Thinking it would bring good luck to the Cubs. But Usher stopped Sionis with entering with Murphy. Sionis uh, appealed directly to, uh, to then club owner, P.K. Ringley, asking him why, why he couldn't take his personal mascot into the game. B 
Because the goat stinks, Ringley replied, according to the Billy Goat Tavern. So Sianis threw up his arms and cursed the team. The Cubs ain't going to win no more, he declared. When the Cubs lost the, the series to the Tigers, Sianis went to Ringley, wrote to Ringley, sent to Ringley a telegram. Who stinks now, it read. Um, then we know there is the just a few more curses. You know, there's the curse of the Bambino. This is another baseball reference. The Red Sox, when they traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees for money, they had a curse. They didn't win a World Series until 2004. Um, and then the Cubs didn't win a World Series from this point until 2016. Ironically, the person that broke the curses for the Red Sox and the White Sox was um, oh, his name. I think his last name's Epstein. I'm trying to remember his first name. He was a he's a Jewish manager. He managed both teams. He built the teams. And he won the World Series for both teams. Just interesting. And then for LA, I, as a kid, I always heard about the Clipper curse. And I've always heard about the Theo Epstein. Thank you, Alan. Um, I always heard about the Clipper curse. I Googled about I Googled it. Um, I Googled it earlier today. So there's no concrete Clipper curse, but there is. The Clippers, they never, they always get injured in the playoffs and people feel they have some curse. There's no story around it, but it's a great way to launch just, you know, everyone believes in curses and jinxes and all those different things. Um, so it's a great way to start just with this, these stories, which we have about this. So I just want to take a graph just to show who, how many people believe in this superstition. So let's look over here. Um, in the U.S., 16% of U.S. adults, this is a survey done in 2018, so I'm assuming um, the world has gotten a bit crazier since then, so I'm assuming the number is higher. So 16% of um, Americans believe in curses and the evil eye. In the U.K., that would be 13%. In France, 20%. And in Russia, 56%. You know, the, they have so much crazy going on there, Putin and everything. Um, I don't blame them. So let us so let us get started. Let's get right into this. Um, so this is just the graph of how these ideas are so popular. So now the question is, let's get right into the Torah's perspective on curses. So let's look in text two. It says in text two, um, do not curse a deaf person. It's a, this is in a, there's a commandment, we're not allowed to curse deaf people. So the big question is, everyone asks, is what does it mean don't curse a deaf person? If anything, you should be allowed to curse a deaf person. You know, my sister's wedding was last week, so I have a relative which is hard of, hard of hearing. So I have very sensitive ears, and the music was really loud, so where I was outside, I was talking to her, I told her for a joke, you know, you're lucky, you're hard of hearing, you can't, you can't hear the music. It's not bothering you. So she's like, no, it's so loud that I, I feel it in my chest. Why would deaf people of all the disabilities people might have be single out for curses? We're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. So, so the real question is, is like, so Ron just asked us, so what we're getting to is great. So it says not to kill, not to curse a, a deaf person. Why do we sing out a deaf person? A deaf person, unless they're expert at reading lips, they do it behind their back. They'll never hear it. So why are we singling them out? 
So there's a book called the Sefer HaChinuch, which was, this is, he was around before Maimonides. Um, we don't know exactly who it was. There's a few ideas who it was. We don't know exactly who it was who wrote it. So he, what his mission is, he explains the, he explains the Torah, all the mitzvahs of the Torah, and he goes through all the nuance and everything, all the Talmudic discussion, and he kind of brings us through to better understand the mitzvah. So he explains to us the mitzvah of not cursing a deaf person. So he says as follows. We cannot, underst- we cannot understand the mechanism through which a curse affects its subject. And how the words have this power. But we know that all people, both Jews and non-Jews, take curses seriously and believe that even the curse of an ordinary person has an effect on the subject, bringing misfortune and distress, knowing that this is the case. We can suggest that this is the reason for the transgression. God is forbidding us from causing damage to others with our lips, just as he forbids us from damaging them with our actions. So I, so basically what he says is, so let me backtrack a little bit because I thought the, the question I just asked, I thought he addressed it. So the question is, why don't, why is they do not curse a deaf person? So it's really, they not even allowed to curse a deaf person, even if you don't hear that you're not, we don't want to, the words should come out of your mouth. So the prohibition is not about the person hearing the curse. It's about you saying the curse. So that's where the chinuch, the rabbi, the safe, the book of the, of the Sefer Achinuch, he gets right into it. And he says that, you know, what are curses? He said, we all believe in them. Why do we believe in them? He says, I don't have an idea. I don't know why. But we all do. And, it, and he says, the reason why he can't curse someone is because there is two ways to curse someone. There's two ways to damage someone. The Torah does not allow us or it's also normal common sense, you're not allowed to physically damage a fellow human being. Um, you can't, even ourselves are not allowed to damage because we are all cre- God's creations and we, we are supposed to take care of our bodies in this way. But for sure, our fellow, we're not allowed to cause them any harm. So most of the Torah deals when it gets to these mitzvahs where it speaks about conduct between man and his fellow it will mostly speak about the ideas of physical harm but there is one mitzvah which does not discuss physical harm rather it discusses emotional harm that a curse can harm someone emotionally so therefore we shouldn't say it and even if they don't hear it since we know that we see clearly that curses have come to fruition, you shouldn't be the cause, the causation of someone's else, someone else's, um, someone else's hurt. We shouldn't be the causation of it. And therefore, there is a prohibition against cursing any person is a prohibition against cursing any person, even if, even if they don't hear it, because you will cause them harm. So Maimonides has an alternate approach. Maimonides is an ultra rationalist. So he 
throughout this course, he doesn't take, when we spoke about, last week we spoke about astrology. If you remember, Maimonides believes very strongly that there is no substance to astrology, not whatsoever, rather than the common Jewish belief that even if there might be substance to it, we are supernatural, or this course is we are supernatural, and therefore we can power past that. Um, so Maimonides over here, he takes the ultra rational approach and he says as follows, the, the Maimonides, one of his books, so the Chinuch, he goes through all the mitzvahs of the Torah and explains them. So Maimonides had his own book explaining all the mitzvahs of the Torah called the Sefer HaMitzvahs, the book of mitzvahs. And the Maimonides in this book, he says as follows. He says that one may, one may have thought that the reason, this is text four on page 85, one may have thought that the reason we are forbidden from cursing our fellows is because when they hear the curse, they will be pained and distressed. According to this logic, cursing deaf people should not be forbidden because they'll never hear the curse and, or be, and be distressed by it. The Torah, however, um, the Torah, however, forbids us from doing this, from cursing a deaf person. And cautions us that cursing deaf people is also forbidden. The reason for this prohibition is that the Torah is not only concerned with the feelings of the subject of the curse, but with the character of the cursor as well. We are cautioned not to entice ourselves to revenge or accustom ourselves to express anger. So Maimonides takes an opposite approach. He says, you know, for sure not allowed to curse someone. Why can't we curse someone? What would be the reasoning for that? It would be as follows. It would be because what is, if you are inclined to curse someone, what does that say about you? The type of person that curses his fellow, the Torah doesn't want you to be. There is a commandment, the positive commandment in the Torah, to love your fellow as yourself. So if you are someone that is inclined to curse his fellow, that says something negative about you. And the Torah wants to is going to tell us that don't curse a deaf person because it's not about what he is going to say, what he hears. It's about how what it says about you, and we don't want to be that person. So just to quickly summarize, and then I will take some questions before we continue. There are two opinions about curses, general opinions. There is opinion A, which would be the, the book called the Chinuch, which is one of the original books going through all the mitzvahs. He says that we, we are not allowed to curse a deaf person because curses have substance, even if we don't know what it is. And just like we are not allowed to, we are not allowed to damage our fellow physically, we are not allowed to damage our fellow, cause him hurt, even if it's not, we're not physically doing anything. Maimonides counters and says, a man has no ability. We, sorrow of man, pain of man is in the hands of God. We do not have the ability to cause that through our words. You know, if you take with a fist, you, we could cause someone pain, but our words can even cause emotional pain, but in a curse, if the person, that's on the guy that hears the curse. If the person believes in God, he believes that curses mean nothing, then it won't emotionally cause anything damage to him. But 
it says a lot about the cursor and the Torah forbids us from cursing our fellow because the Torah does not want us to be the one, uh, one that curses. Do we have any questions? All right. Let us continue. Yeah, I think you, you quote Mr. Stressing that even if a person curse doesn't hear it, it's still forbidden. Okay. Do not curse a deaf person. There's any questions on Zoom? Got that's a Zoom audience. All clear? All right. Let us continue then. Um, if you're on Zoom and you have a question, feel free to put the raise your hand and I'll see that. I try to stop every once in a while for questions as well. All right. So let's go to text five. Let's discuss, we just discussed curses. Let's discuss what the evil eye is. So there is a Mishnah in Avot. Mishnah is um, the oral Torah. So there was one book of the oral Torah called Avos, which is called Ethics of Our Fathers, which is most of the oral Torah discusses laws that we need to follow. The ethics the call is not laws, but it's how we are expected to behave. So it says a very, very interesting thought over there. It says in text five, Rabbi Yeshua said, an evil eye, the evil inclination, and the hatred of one's fellows drive a person from the world. Yes, we have these three things. So um, the evil inclination makes a lot of sense. You know, our own, our own, um, our indulgences, someone who's very indulged doesn't know how to hold himself back. That ends up getting him into trouble. So that makes sense. It, it, it drives him a person from the world. Hatred, hatred of fellow people as well, that when someone has a burning hate, they can, they lose control. Um, most people that are, almost everyone that is sitting in prison is either because they couldn't control their evil inclination or because they couldn't control their anger, their hatred. And that's, I'd say, uh, as a, a yeshiva student, I visited many prisons from all the crimes of the people that I visited. They probably 90% of them fall into those two categories. But now it says, and the evil eye. So what is this evil eye that drives a person out of the world? So there's going to be, once again, you know, two opinions. So we have Maimonides' opinion, which will be like this. So this is a book written, we had in last week as well, a rabbi named the Rashbats. So he lived after Maimonides. So he writes as follows. In text six, Maimonides explains that the evil eye means greediness. Being greedy can drive people from the world because obsessive pursuit of wealth can lead people to places to place themselves in dangerous circumstances. So Maimonides is going to call the evil eye greed. That greed will to drive, will, one that is greedy will put himself places where he shouldn't be in order to get money that he shouldn't have. Or maybe he's supposed to have it, but not that way. And therefore that could drive, he will damage himself and therefore it will drive him 
out of the world, out of this world. But then he continues and he says, the Rashbats continues and he says his own opinion. He says, I disagree with this explanation. The Talmudic definition of evil eye is well known. It refers to looking at a fellow's property with jealousy or hatred, which causes material damage to the people and their property. So he therefore says that, he says Maimonides is being rational. And Maimonides is saying one cannot, as I said earlier about curses, that one cannot damage their fellow metaphysically. If you do physical damage, but once we get to the metaphysical, you can't damage someone. So what would evil eye mean? Evil eye wouldn't mean you being jealous about your fellow and causing him harm. It's basically the unspoken curse. Rather, it would be being greedy. Because greed, it's all about you. You're not that we, we don't, an evil eye would mean greed. The problem with this is, which is why the Rashbats rejects the Maimonides, he says that's very rational. But from the Talmudic perspective, the, Tal the Talmud doesn't seem to ever refer to evil eye like that. So, if that is the case, even though that's the, maybe a more rational way of looking at it, that doesn't seem to be the correct way of looking at it. Yes, Ron. My mother was like a small fowl in the Ukraine, and she believed in a lot of things about all the superstitions. One of the things we believe in the lie, her concept of evil lie was that it's out there. And when you want to use it to hurt somebody you want to get, you call upon it. Uh, it's not as if you're casting the evil eye. It's out there floating around, and you call on it when you want it to serve your wish. So Ron asked that he said his mother was from a small city in where? Ukraine. In Ukraine. And her, and her, her concept of evil eye was not that you cast it, rather it's there and you could send it out to someone else. So yeah, so from the Talmud, it's more about ourselves that we looking at someone negatively would be the evil eye. You've never heard of that concept? No. Huh. But she just said it was all, she it was always out there looking for some evil <laughs> Anyhow, there is a lot of widespread, um, there's a lot of, without, throughout the Torah, there's a lot of widespread um, mentions of the evil eye. So for starters, um, you have Abraham. Abraham, he marries Sarah, but they can't have children. So Sarah gave her servant, Hagar, to Abraham and said, I'm, we're not going to be able to have children together, so might as well have children with her. Anyhow, Hagar gets pregnant right away with Abraham. And she starts mocking Sarah. She says, Sarah, you were married to Abraham for so long, you can never get pregnant. And boom, just like that, I get pregnant. Um, Sarah casts an evil, and then she has a miscarriage. The reason for the miscarriage is Sarah casts, it says in the commentary, so this is all um, on page 88 in your books. Um, I'm going to go through some of these stories. Sarah casts an evil eye on Hagar, and because of that, that caused her to have a miscarriage. And because of that, um, be, 
Well, I'll get into um, ideas, how to guard yourself, things we don't do because of evil eye as well. So your concept of casting an evil eye is wishing somebody off. Or being being jealous. Um, also, the, we, the, the another concept of evil eye in the Torah is the Joseph. He's in Egypt. He is selling. There's, there's a famine. There's the only place you buy food is Egypt. Joseph's brothers, they come into Egypt in 10 different entrances. People shouldn't cast an evil eye on them. Like, wow, that's a, that's a pack of good-looking brothers. They don't want that to happen. So they enter from different, um, from different gates. Another story of evil eye in the Torah is, you know, we all know this big, everyone knows the story of David and Goliath, a very famous story. So the question is, why did David, you know, he was fighting on behalf of Jewish people. Why did he come with only a slingshot? What was going on? So the answer is actually, this is this part of the story people don't know, is that when, when David volunteered to fight Goliath, he was given King Saul's armor. King Saul happened to be a very big person. David wasn't very big. And the armor fit David, though, miraculously. King David saw that King Saul was jealous of him at that moment. And he made like he couldn't move. He realized it was too heavy with him for him. And he said, I'll just fight him with the slingshot. So that's actually a story. So we see within the Torah, there are a lot of stories of, within just the stories of Torah, there's a lot of stories of evil eye. And now there are laws in the Torah as a result of evil eye. Number one, number one, that we don't count. You know, and when you're, we don't count people, one, two, three, four. If you're ever in a synagogue and I need a minion, Either they'll go, not one, not two, not three. It's like the anti-count. Or there's there are certain verses, a verse that goes like this, which is 10 words, I'll count. Hoshia et hamecha, uvarif et nachlatecha, urim v'nasim ad olam. That's 10. That's 10. So if you're looking for a minion, like if you are in a, if you go to a religious synagogue and they're struggling with a minion, you'll see a guy going, Hoshia et hamecha, and they'll be counting. Another thing is, um, when someone's pregnant, we actually try not to speak about the pregnancy for the first three months. We don't tell anyone because of someone shouldn't cast the evil eye in the first three months because that's the most dangerous trimester for the baby. Um, and there are many more. This is all in the graph in your books. And because of this, there's actually a very interesting law, which we'll see in text seven. Um, some of you will be very familiar with this law. It says as follows. When people commend the wisdom, wealth, family, etc., of others, they must bless them that they not be affected by an evil eye. So that's, what is it? So what would be the Hebrew word for this? Would be, um, if you speak Hebrew, it would be you say, wow, you have such a beautiful family, or you, um, or if you speak Yiddish, you say Kenai Nahura. That Kenai Nahura, you have such a beautiful family. Um, there's a Sephardic version, which I've never heard before, but they say Ben Porat Yosef. I've never heard it, someone actually say it. But the reason for that is, is because Joseph would, Joseph had, he had a blessing from Jacob that he was hired, that the evil eye cannot affect him. So when you say something positive on somebody, you say, yeah, the evil eye shouldn't affect you. But we see there's actually a law that we take, Judaism takes the evil eye extremely seriously and therefore and therefore um we there are certain things that we say in order to ensure that if you're praising someone 
You don't want them to get an evil eye, heaven forbid, as a result of the praise. And therefore, we'll, we'll try to negate that right away and say, yeah, I don't want you to have an evil eye. Don't worry. Okay. So to, to summarize, we had that Maimonides holds the evil eye is greed. And that's why he drives us out of the world. The response holds, and this is the opinion we are mostly going to go with the rest of the class, that evil eye is real. And we see it many times in the Torah and throughout the Talmud. And therefore, um, one, should, um, one should be careful not to look at someone negatively. And that therefore, we said that when you see something positive in a person, you should right away bless them that they shouldn't get an eye and hara, a evil eye out of this. All right. So now we are going, um, we want to figure out now how the evil eye works. Till now, we are discussing that there is an evil eye. Now, how does it operate? So we're going to, we're going to be, there's a certain rabbi, his name was the Or HaChayim. His name was Achayim, Achayim ben, Rabbi Chaim ben Atar. He was a incredible Kabbalist, which lived in the 1600s. Legend has it that the holy Baal Shem Tov, which also lived in the 1600s, he was a, the founder of the Hasidic move, movement, wanted to travel to Israel in order to meet the Or HaChayim, because he felt if they two could meet up together, they could bring the Messianic era. And the Baal Shem Tov tries traveling to Israel and he gets stuck on the way and he can't make it. And they never end up meeting each other. So he, the Or HaChayin, he wrote a very extensive commentary on the Torah. So one of the big stories of the Torah which I want to get into, is there's the story, there was Bilam. He was a uh, non-Jewish prophet. He is hired to curse the Jewish people. The Jewish people are coming too close to Israel, the, which then was the land of Canaan. The kingdoms of Midian and Moab get nervous that Israel, that, that the Jews, the Israelites, are going to conquer them. So they hire Bilam to curse the Jewish people in order to stop them. And there's a whole, the long story short is, is that Bilam tries to curse the Jewish people, but blessings come out of his mouth. It's a very, very, very beautiful. It's one of my favorite sections of the Torah is this story. So since it gets into the idea of curses, the Orachim discusses this a little bit, which, by the way, most of this course is based on the Orachayim. Even though I'm bringing a lot of opinions, the basis for all of it is actually this lesson, I mean, is, is the, this Orachayim, it's very long. So we're just going to speak about a piece of it. So if you see exercise 3.2 on page 92, we, I'm going to first, we're, before we read the Orachayim, we're going to ask, we're going to see through reading them, him, if we get these three answers. Number one, what is the underlying philosophical question bothering the Orachayim? Number two, how does the Orachayim answer this question? Because he's going to say something interesting. 
he's not going to ask a question. He's not going to answer it. He's just going to say something. We're going to find, we're going to look through this, see if you get through this together. And three, what is a simplistic explanation for the evil eye curse effect that the Orachayim is implicitly rejected? So here's the Orachayim. Let's go. He says as follows. The explanation, this is um, for those using the book, this is text number Text number eight on page 92. The explanation for the effect of the curse is as follows. God has great patience for all transgressors, both the righteous who transgress on occasion, as well as the wicked who transgress intentionally. This is operative at all times, aside from when God is indignant. When God's indignation is aroused, he is exacting in judgment and does not extend his characteristic patience. When people curse their fellows, this causes the cursed parties' transgressions to be highlighted and God doesn't maintain his patience for them. But if the subjects of the curse have no transgressions that make them worthy of punishment, the curse will indeed be completely ineffective. So let's unpack. The Orachayim says that people, um, that he says, number one, God is very patient. You know, we sin all the time. You know, like there's, sometimes someone will be upset at God and will do something to say, God, if you exist, why am I not struck by lightning? The reason why the person was struck by lightning is because God is very patient and God knows we struggle. He didn't care if he would have, if he would have created perfect people and his expectation for us would be, per, for, for us would be to be perfect, then we would be immediately punished if we weren't perfect. God created an imperfect world for us to perfect and he, he, he created imperfect people to perfect the imperfect world. And because of that, he is very patient with us. If we make mistakes, it happens. I make plenty of mistakes today. We all make mistakes all the time. And even one that is wicked. So the, the average person is mostly good. You make mistakes. The wicked person is mostly bad. He by mistake does some good things. But even him, or maybe on purpose, he does good things as well. But he's mostly not, not he's, that's not, it's not where he's, positively, that's not where he's at. So the question is, like, so now that's how, sorry, no question. That's how God normally operates. But now when someone's cursed, sometimes God is in the mood of judgment. When someone's cursed, you highlight him for God to be judged. So now if the person's perfect, if the person's perfect, great. Then there's no judgment, you know, like he'll be, he'll be acquitted. But let's say he's not perfect. Then we're putting someone in a bad situation and therefore we shouldn't be cursing. So what's the, so let's go through this exercise again. What is the underlying philosophical question bothering the Orachayim? The question would be, anyone, anyone have an idea what they think the question is? Zoom audience, anyone have an idea what they think the question, the question is? All right. The question is, would be as follows. How does man have the ability to curse his fellow? Ultimately, 
ultimately, um, if they um, ultimately the person, the, the force making the curse happen is God. So how do why, why do our curses mean it? So he answers the question by saying there's something called the fist theory. That if you're going to walk around with a clenched fist out, you'll probably end up punching someone in the face. That if um, that none of us are perfect, so we are just putting it's like you're making a clenched fist. You're you're being the you're being the guy walking with his fist to hurt someone. If you hurt someone, you're gonna exact judge, judgment upon. You'll exact judgment upon them, which wouldn't have happened because God primarily operates with mercy. Um, but God primarily operates with mercy. But sometimes when we highlight your, when, when your deficiencies are highlighted, it makes it very easy for the side of prostitution to point out to God, God, he was just cursed. Here are all of his issues. Now this is the perfect time to exact punishment for his issues. And actually, therefore, it actually in the Talmud, it says there is many restrictions when you're traveling to make sure to do stuff safely or whatever, because um, that would be a great time. If you're walking on the edge of a cliff, the Talmud says, if you're walking alone on the edge of a cliff, the, that's not a good, it's not a good idea to do because the, the angels of judgment will point down to God to your deficiencies and say, God, you don't need to make a miracle happen to punish you. Just make a strong wind, make a little bit of a landslide, and it's all over. This it says in the Talmud. So the same thing is with, with cursing. We don't want to put someone. Words matter. We don't want to put someone in that situation. And therefore we don't speak. And they say a story. There was actually one time. There was a lonely Russian guy. He had a pet parrot. And the. And whenever this guy would have friends over. The parrot would go. Would, would start talking and say. Putin's a moron. Putin's a dictator. Putin's a this. And finally, and this is, he would always get it like scared about his parrot. The parrot was like, he never spoke against Putin in his house, obviously. The parrot knew, knew better. Finally, one night he hears a knock on his door. He knew it was a KGB. So he takes his parrot, he throws it in the, in the freezer, shuts it, and he opens the, he opens the door. The KGB is there. The KGB starts looking around, looking for his parrot. He's like, I don't know. My parrot disappeared. I have no idea. They can't find it. They leave. They open the door and the parrot starts. The parrot, he opens the door. So his parrot is like, wow, you're a close one. That was a close one. So parrot tells him back, he says, Putin is the greatest leader of the free world. So the person looks at him. He says, what? You almost got killed for hating Putin. What's going on? So parrot says, I just got out of Siberia. Let me speak. <laughs> um, I guess my first joke was better. <laughs>
Yeah. That's all the, yeah, it's a different one though. So I wanted to, so let's get back to the, the ideas of mercy and judgment. So on Rosh Hashanah, we say a very interesting prayer. We say, we ask God as follows. We, um, we ask God like this. You could either treat us like a father treats his son or like a master treats his servants. And we say, um, we, we say that if we're like sons, then you'll treat us mercifully because the father has mercy on the son. If we're like servants, which means you'll be exacting judgment from us, we still know that you are definitely going to help us because the master has to take care of their servants. You know, there's the teacher and there's the father. So the father, um, the, the father or the parents, they, how do they deal with their child? They love their child. They have mercy for their child all the time. You send your kid to school, the teacher doesn't have that patience for the child. The teacher expects the child to be in his best behavior. God is both of those to us. Sometimes God, usually God acts mercifully. God's also our king. That's judgment. So we never want to point out judgment of our fellow through cursing. Um, because that will cause that could that would be causing that would be triggering the idea the what the triggering judgments. So now, just to summarize, um, the Or Hachayim he says that the problem with cursing would be as follows: it would be that when you curse someone, you cast an evil eye on someone, you are triggering judgment upon them. Not that you have the power to do anything. You're triggering judgment upon them. So if they are a perfect person, then the evil, they have no evil eye is not capable of affecting them because there's no one to be affected. But if you're not perfect, which is lightly, which is the case with most of us, that could be problematic. And therefore, that is therefore you should. Never curse someone and not cast an evil eye upon anyone. Do we have any questions? Now, again, I said, just to give you an example, the cursing isn't um, casting the evil eye. The cursing is causing the evil eye that's hanging around them to come down and zap. My mother's concept of evil eye is, is the right one. So according to this the, the examples in this book that you didn't mention skipped over when King David um, fought Goliath and um, went out uh, without armor uh, because Saul's armor didn't fit David, David was not accustomed to armor. Um, the ban against counting Jewish directly because it was known to arouse the evil eye. 
So Aurel's it's out there. No, it's yeah. So Aurel's the evil eye would mean it brings out. So this verse, the evil eye would mean jealousy. It brings out jealousy. If we're going to get into this more later. But no individual has the evil eye. The evil eye is your jealousy. And that's you could you. And if you put it on someone else, you could sometimes give them a negative force. So the force is not theirs, but it's a result of their jealousy. And it's not the person who's jealous either who has the person the is, is out there. Yes, it's a negative force. And the yes, I guess yeah, I guess I misunderstood you before. I guess you're correct. Yeah. Just interesting. I there was a there was someone that I, I met once. He had a Bugatti. And this a Bugatti, the car. Um, so he was like the 17th American person in the United States to get one. Someone that used to live here in Malibu. And then he got rid of it. So I asked him, like, what happened to your Bugatti? So he told me um, that cops used to pull him over just to look at his car. <laughs> and it was just too much for him. Um, usually someone that drives around with such a sports car, they're usually not only being pulled over because the cops want to look at their car, they're usually using it using it the way it should be we're not on the road but the way it uh using it out there's something interesting just you, you remind me of about the evil eye but so here in text nine there's a the zohar will gives us a deeper and more mystical view of the evil eye so the zohar which is the original text of kabbalah says as follows this is text nine. God operates on two levels, concealed and revealed. The revealed level is that of worldly justice, while the concealed level is the source from which all blessings emerge. As a result, all of a person's conduct that is concealed is saturated with blessings. And all of a person's conduct that is in the open is subject to strict justice. On this level, everything is subject to the evil eye. So the Zohar says there's a two, the world is being operated on two operating systems. There is the public operating system public life operating system and there's the private life operating system so if you operate in public you operate in public and you flaunt yourself then you fall within the revealed god category of operating system which every single action has a reaction Every single deed has a consequence. So therefore, you are living within the realm of evil eye. People, because this, someone could cast their jealousy upon you and you, you could suffer from that as a result of the fact that you are putting yourself in that situation. But if someone lives in the private realm, if someone lives in the private realm, 
meaning that he doesn't necessarily um, doesn't necessarily uh, flaunt his wealth. He doesn't necessarily drive the fanciest car if he's super smart, doesn't go around tell showing when how smart he is, or etc. Flaunting their abilities, all that, then you get transferred to the private life operating system where God will relate to us in a concealed way, in a non, not in the through judgment, but rather in a way that's about that. So a great example for this would be, let's say, let's say I, I start a company. So now when you want to start a company, so I'm the CEO, I'm going to make, I need a manager of sales. I need a manager of advertising. I need a manager of whatever, a lot of other things. Um, so now I could, so now I built a system of my company that based on, it's a computer system, that based on the amount of work you do is how much you get paid. There's no salary. It's about quantity of work. So if you accomplish a lot, you get paid a lot better. So now let's say there's a certain person in the company that coming at the end of the year, he, he accomplished, let's say, $50,000 worth of, he accomplished $50,000 worth of work throughout the year. So now that's all he deserves. But I'm the CEO, so I can go like, hey, I want to give you a bonus. You're always coming, you're always smiling. I love that. And I give them a bonus because even though I built the system, I'm not part of the system. I am the system. So if you want to live within the system, you live in public, you are living within the system. But if you are, but if you are living in private, you are concealed from the system, it's, you are beyond the system. And it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother operation. And, you know, like just something I found very interesting is that, you know, in like, you go to Brooklyn, there are many, many, many very wealthy people, like they're very, very wealthy Jews. And like, you could tell from, certain nuance like their houses are maybe a bit nicer on the inside but you could really have on the same block someone extremely wealthy and someone that is barely making ends meet living next door to each other and you'll you, there's not much they're driving a similar car they're driving a, it's um well you can tell the difference is maybe on vacation where they go on vacation um but it's you in within judaism we have this a lot that people even when they're very wealthy, not flaunting their wealth. Like maybe someone who's wealthier will have drive a Toyota instead of a Honda. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not everyone and there's, there are plenty of exceptions. Just something I've found very interesting, especially with preparing this class, like something I, uh, I've noticed. So the Zohar, um, so the Zohar basically says, I'm going to summarize that this is, this is the both of their approach, the Zohar and the Orachayim. The Orachayim, he said that the curses in the evil eye are a, 
is curses the curse and the evil eye only can have an effect because the person who's been put on is not perfect and therefore and therefore um as a result of that the one who is casting it he has the power to give it to the person that's being cast upon but of the person's perfect wouldn't have the power that's and that's what or says then the zohar brings it out and puts some of the blame on the person who's getting the evil eye and saying that if you would have lived privately, you would operate above the realm of evil eye in general. And you are the only reason why the, the, there is an evil eye issue is because you're flaunting and you are living more in public. So now the question is, how do we protect ourselves from the evil eye? Great. So we got an evil eye issue. There is an infestation of evil eye. How do we um protect ourselves from the evil eye. But before that, um, I should ask if anyone is all good. Do we have any questions? All right. Let us continue. So number one would be mitzvah protection. You know, everyone... You know, from the even the Orha Hayat, he says very interestingly that you know that the reason why the an evil eye can affect you is because we're not perfect. So the answer wouldn't be to be perfect. The answer would be to do an extra mitzvah. You know, an extra mitzvah can be something really small. Let's say you're not ready to keep kosher, but let's say you decide pick a product you have in your house a lot that's always kosher, but to check for a kosher symbol, make sure this. You buy canned tomatoes. Let's say the canned tomatoes are kosher whenever you buy it. Or small little things, a small little mitzvah, because all these stuff are protection from the evil eye. Um, and just other things to protect. So this is in page 96. You have the hamsa. The hamsa was a hand. So they sell them. I see a lot of them with the eye. The ones with the eye, I'm not sure what the origin of that is, but it books. And there are in Jewish books in that it speaks about having the hamsa with the hay inside. If you see the picture, it has the letter hay in the middle. It does not have a I because the letter five, the number hay represents the number five. There are five fingers and the hand with the ha, a hay, which represents letter five, the number five could guard us from a, a an evil eye. Over here, it I don't know why they took a negative approach against the red string. Um, there are people that say you have a red string, you have, have someone, I don't know all the details, a lot of people wear the red string in order for that. Over here it says that it's actually not allowed. Um, there is something called an amulet, called a kamea, which this, um, it's certain passages from Kabbalah that you write on it, which could guard a person. There are recent stories of this, and the Talmud is filled with different ways of writing a Kamea, an amulet, and they work so well that the Talmud says, even though on Shabbat we're not supposed to write, if someone is suffering from something, you are allowed, if we know that a certain Kamea, a certain amulet will help for that, you're actually allowed to write it on Shabbat. Wow. So to save the person. So there is, um, there is that. And then last but not least, you have the the Shir Hamalot card, which is 
the Labavitcher Rebbe said that children should have it's a certain, it's uh, Psalms 121, that it helps protect a baby and actually a, wo a woman, as soon as they conceive, are supposed to carry it on them, it helps the baby. And it is to guard from the evil eye. Guard from, it's, these are all things which are spoken about, actions one could take to guard themselves um, from the evil eye. But in general, in general, the main thing would be to do mitzvahs. Yeah. You didn't mention spirit. Uh, and then, oh, I missed that. My yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. People do poop, poop, poop. People bang three times as well. Someone, I was at someone's house on Sunday and they told me they complimented, they complimented my wife. And then afterwards, she banged on the table. I wouldn't have noticed that necessarily, but because uh, we're dealing with the course, I I took note of that. I've been starting to pay attention to what to what people do to guard from the evil eye. Um, but the main thing to guard from the evil eye would be the mitzvah. So let's look at text 10. The Rebbe writes a song about being scared of the evil eye. The Rebbe says as follows. If your mezuzot are kosher, and most importantly, your daily conduct is in accordance with Torah law, it is absolutely impossible for the evil eye to have any effect on you. On the basic level, firmly resolving to align your daily conduct with the guidance of our living Torah and to observe the mitzvot, about which we are told you will live with them in God's commands. In addition, this is the path of receiving God's blessings and everything that you need. So we see the Rebbe says the ultimate would be just to do, be positive, do positive. I said about the kosher example, just do bring more positive into the world and that will guard you because if you are, when I was in yeshiva, um, the yeshiva wasn't in the safest spot of town. So bikes, our bikes get stolen all the time. Um, now the security is a lot better, especially with all the anti-Semitism. But then it was more of there's people stealing bikes and stuff. That was more of the issue. So the gates weren't necessarily always locked. So stuff would get stolen. So I had, one of my friends, he told me, he told me that you just need to make your bike Second to easiest to steal. If you have, if you, if you, if those guys don't lock their bike, you just need to put by a, a light up lock from a 99 cent store and lock it. If everyone's locking the bikes, just buy a little bit of better lock that yours shouldn't be the easiest one to steal. So the same thing, you know, if you're constantly doing mitzvahs, you're bringing positive energy into the world. The Rebbe is saying that, you know, if you are needed, you're showing your worth all the time. This is my own interpretation. It's not the Rebbe said. But if you're showing your worth all the time, then the evil eye won't affect you because, like, exact judgment on him, on her. She's busy helping. She's busy helping her neighbor. He's busy doing that with. He's busy doing that mitzvah. He's busy putting on tefillin, and you keep on doing. You, you keep. We keep ourselves occupied with mitzvahs. It will always help us the evil eye. So that is step one. Step two is privacy. So we already mentioned earlier about keeping private. The Zohar says that when you keep private, um, when you keep private, that it um, that it will it will um, when we keep private, it will take us out of the realm 
of nature and put us in the hidden area of God, which is up where he operates above nature. So there's actually, I spoke earlier about Bilaam trying to curse the Jews and he blesses them. So he says as follows. He says, when Bilaam raised his eyes, this is text 11, page 99. When Bilaam raised his eyes and saw Israel dwelling according to its tribes, the spirit of God rested upon him and proclaimed his message. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. So I don't know if any, like you ever, Jews are the worst campers. Worst campers? We, we were so bad at camping. You wake up, oh, my back hurts. What do you mean there's no bed? It's so cold out. We're, we're big complainers. You know, to go camping, you have to not complain. You got to be quiet. Us Jews, we're not great at that. We're bad campers. So what did, what did Billam see in our camping? He said, he, he sees us camping and he says, how great are the tents of Jacob? So what is going on? So there's a very interesting explanation for this blessing and it goes as follows this is text 12 Bilam proclaimed how goodly are your tents O Jacob because he saw the entrances of the tents were not aligned opposite each other so that no one would be able to see into their fellow's tent and harm them with the evil eye Bilam said to himself I cannot curse I cannot curse them with the evil eye because of this because this is something they are so particular about themselves the evil eye cannot affect people that live privately in their tents and don't flaunt themselves publicly. So what, what's going on? Bilam, he looks at the Jewish people. He sees the Jewish people, they put their tents in a very um, peculiar way. They Instead of all facing each other, you know, and you go on a camping trip and camp, when, as a kid, when we, they would take us camping, um, worst night of the summer, when they would take us camping, they, they, we would all put up our tents. We'd all have them facing each other, you know, just in case, just in case you hear a noise, we'd all unzip it, look. <laughs> so the Jewish people, when they're in the desert for 40 years, they never did that. Um, so I don't know if this, this is just a picture of tents. I thought maybe you would bring it out in the picture on the slideshow. But every tent had their entrance facing another direction in order that no one should ever be able to see in each other's tents and to be able to cast an evil eye upon them, living privately. And that is key. If you don't want that, if we live privately, we keep private lives, that is key to not having an evil eye. Well, there's the concept the evil eye comes out of the eye of a cursor, evil person. But if you can't. supposed to be independent of it. Yeah. Um, are there any questions? All right, then we'll get to the video. Do you have someone in your pocket? I bet you do. That usually refers to having strong influence over someone, but I'm referring to something else. With social media, we have many people in our pockets, at least digitally. With devices small enough to carry wherever we go, we communicate instantly. Kids update their parents. Relatives pay remote visits. We support, nurture, issue an advisory, forward a shopping tip, ask for ideas, join a conversation, make someone stay, or just say hi. With social media, we can admire a new arrival, celebrate success, offer inspiration, 
and invite endless friends into our private vacation. We can even join a dinner without consuming a carb. So yes, social media delivers your social world into your pocket and delivers you into other people's pockets. But like all things stored in pockets, it's easy to get carried away. When we think we are connecting with those we care about, we can actually be negatively affecting some of them. That's because each person has their own successes and failures, good times and bad. You might be feeling on top of the world, but someone else is at the bottom. You might feel like you've made it, while someone in your audience feels like they'll never. Think about it. You move into your dream home and want to share your excitement. But how might that make someone struggling to keep their cramped quarters feel? You capture a hilarious video of your boisterous brew and are itching to share the joy. How might someone desperate for just one react internally to that? Your perfect relationship pose has been captured digitally. You're proud to post. How might that be taken by someone whose self-image has been worn down to the bone by a difficult relationship? The ideal vacation includes posting manicured images of its highlights. What might that do to the emotions of someone who dares not hope? You're in dazzling attire. Why not reap some online admiration? What might that mean to someone struggling with their body image? So, is there anything wrong with sharing proud, cute, and memorable moments? Not at all. But here's a dose of wisdom that might help strike a balance. You see, modesty has traditionally been a trademark Jewish value, and its basic ideas run something like this. Not everything has to be shared. Privacy makes an experience more meaningful, not less. Not everything shared publicly has to be shared completely. Consider whether what you share will arouse jealousy. Estimate in advance how individuals might react internally to what you display or disclose. Will they feel delighted or dismayed, enlightened or depressed, inspired or deflated? Put yourself in their sandals for a moment. So before sharing your next slice of your life, you might want to ask yourself, am I sharing an important update or am I flaunting? Will this make people genuinely happy for me? Or will it invite jealousy and resentment? How many images or posts of this do I really need to upload? Is it realistic or a heavily manicured impression of reality? So it turns out that having people in your pockets is not enough. We've got to have them in mind too. All right, so I just want to, um, I want to actually finish off with, um, so it's actually just to finish off in this idea, there is, it says in the Talmud, and I'll say in Hebrew first and in English, Ein habracha metsuya ela bedavar that blessing is found only in the matters which are concealed by the eye. And the Talmud says this, that, you know, if you want, if you're, if you harvested your wheat, if you count how much you have, then you already lost the blessing. If you don't count, then God's blessing could be on there. And it's a, it's about a lot of things just to, about keeping um, privacy. But then I want to finish off that there is actually no, so we're speaking this whole lesson 
we are speaking about how our words have power to curse and even just the thought crime. We could think badly about someone else and it could cause harm to someone else. So there is also where this power can be used positively. Um, we all have the ability to bless. So I want to show you text 14. It says, Rabbi Elazar said in the name of Rabbi Hanina, never consider the blessing of an ordinary person unimportant. We know of two people, leaders of their respective generations who received blessings from ordinary people and the blessings were fulfilled. David and Daniel. David was blessed by, by uh, his name was Arnava in Hebrew. I don't know how it is. Um, I, of, of, by Aravna. It's uh, spelled wrong. It should be, there's a U there. It should be a V. As it is written, and Aravna said to the king, may your God favor you. Daniel is blessed by Darius. As it is written, your God, whom you continually serve, will deliver you. Which those two stories are, David, there was a plague going on about Jewish people. And Aravna, he blesses David that the plague should stop. And immediately the plague stops. And Darius, you know, Daniel is famous for um, being thrown into the lion's den. So D Darius threw Daniel in because he was compelled by law to do so, but he blessed him before that he should be saved. And the lions actually don't harm, don't harm him at all. And very interestingly, I want to just, I want to finish and go to text 16. We're going to text skip text 15 um text 16 is actually something very interesting from the Baal Shem Tov. the Baal Shem Tov taught that a blessing given by a close friend is more influential in heaven and more likely to achieve its desired effect than the angel Michal's um the angel Michal's intercessions and pleas for mercy which this means it doesn't mean when someone says god should bless you that you should be wealthy or whatever god should bless you it's when a simple person walks over to you and says i bless you a blessing of a simple person does an ordinary person does not mean we are necessarily obviously the blessing is going to come from god but it does not mean we are necessarily roping god into it you're not you're we are taking responsibility for the blessing and that could have a greater effect than the angel Michael, which angel Michael is the angel which is attributed with kindness by God. And that can have a greater effect. There's a similar saying that what a Hasidic fabringin, a Hasidic gathering can accomplish, even the angel Michael is not able to accomplish. There's a very, very interesting story. There was a, a Hasidic fabringin would be a time when um, you would have different, you have the Hasidim, these are the followers of the Rebbe. They would sit down together and they would open up about their struggles and try to, they would try to get better. There's a lot of wild stories that went on by these different Fabringans. So there's a story, there's one time a city in Russia, which had one very wealthy person. This person, um, this person, um, didn't have any children. Every single year, he would go to his Rebbe and ask the Rebbe for a blessing for children. But the Rebbe would look at the paper with all the everything the guy needed, go through it, 
and would skip the blessing for children. So after a few years, he stopped asking. He realized he's obviously not meant to have children. Anyhow, one time in the town, they are making a fabrengen, which once a year, this rich man would host a fabrengen in his house. He was out of town, but he still hosted it. By a fabrengen, especially in Russia, they would drink. They would drink l'chaim. So they were drinking and they ran out of l'chaim. They ran out of booze. So the Hasidim, it was like 3 a.m., they decided they need more. So they knock on the door of upstairs. They wake up his, this rich man's wife who's in the house and said, we need more l'chaim, we need more booze. So she says, you know, it says that what a Hasidic Fabrian can accomplish, even the angel Michal can accomplish. So if you bless me for children, I will, I will give you, I'll give you enough booze to last you till the end of time. So the Hasid took it really seriously. He put on his jacket. He put on, there's a, something called the gartel. It's a belt of sorts that we wear to pray. And he blesses her that she should have children. And when this, when this person goes, he travels to the Rebbe later, he writes it, by the way, he writes a whole story. And he writes that he blessed her for children. And the Rebbe said, responded and said, you know, there are three, in heaven, there are three chambers. There is one for children, one for life, and one for livelihood. There are three chambers. So he said, you were only destined to have two of them, this per this rich man. And if you were going to, if I would give you a blessing for children, you would have lost out of one of them. And it would have been catastrophic. And therefore, I never gave you the blessing. But these Hasidim, they don't know better. And because they didn't know better, their blessing won't affect that. And you'll have children, you'll, you'll, won't, you, won't, you won't live, you won't lose out on life, and you won't lose your, you won't lose your livelihood. And nine months later, they had a child. Um, it just shows the power of blessings. And like we should really take it seriously. We really do have a power. So here, I want to finish off with the key points video. Lesson three, Jinx and the Evil Eye. One, there is strong support in Jewish sources for the notion that the evil eye and curses can have damaging effects. However, this is not unanimous. Two, the most prominent Jewish theory for explaining the effects of evil eyes and curses is that they attract added scrutiny to us and trigger a review of whether we are indeed worthy of our blessings. God's judgment is just at all times, and no evil eye or curse can strip us of something we truly deserve. 3. The most effective way to protect ourselves from curses and the evil eye is through being more private. When we live modestly and don't unnecessarily flaunt our blessings, we avoid scrutiny of our worthiness and we develop a relationship with God that is personal and intimate rather than correct and formal. 4. Our words and eyes have power. When we look at others favorably and wish them blessings, this has a real positive effect for us and them.
All right. Next week, it's going to be wild. We're going to be speaking about the lesson para, three oops, para and the normal. That is, we'll be getting into angels, demons, ghosts, and all that stuff. Um, I'm really looking forward to the finale next week. And once again, thank you all so much for joining, and I will see you all next week.